Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast for resources for the future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Jimena Gonzalez Ramirez, Associate Professor of Economics and Finance in Manhattan College, and Sarah Jacobson, Professor of Economics at Williams College. Jimena and Sarah are co-authors on a recent working paper that examines the connections between systemic racism and research in the field of environmental and resource economics. Their analysis challenges some long-held practices in the field and suggests a variety of approaches to reduce the ways in which economics research is shaped by and can contribute to racism in our world. This might sound like an abstract issue, but Jimena and Sarah provide really clear examples about how these dynamics unfold and how we can start to overcome them. Stay with us. All right, Jimena Gonzalez Ramirez from Manhattan College and Sarah Jacobson from Williams College. Welcome to Resources Radio. It's great to have you here. Thank you. So happy to be here. Likewise. So uh, I think it's the first time on the show for both of you. So again, welcome. And uh, I'd love to start us off with the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is how did you get interested in working on environmental issues, whether the inspiration came as a kid or emerged later in your lives? So in either order you prefer, uh, how did you get drawn into this field? Do you want to go first, Amanda? Sure. Uh, I guess I have been interested in environmental issues since I was little. Uh, growing up in Colombia made me appreciate its biodiversity, plants, birds, and connection to nature. However, it wasn't until I got to grad school at Iowa State University that I discovered the field of environmental economics. I didn't even know it existed before getting to grad school, so I wasn't going to choose that as my field. But at Iowa State, I was lucky to work for Kathy Kling as an RA, who introduced me to super interesting conservation research and who inspired me to pursue environmental econ as my main field. And I'm very happy with this choice. That's so cool. I didn't know Kathy uh, was there at that time. We've She's been on the show before. And of course, is a, is a great friend of RFF. That's really cool. Sarah, how about you? Yeah, actually, it's uh, not that different from Jimena. Um, as a kid, I was always a very into nature um, and also a real tree hugger. I was like the weirdo in fifth grade who wore a only elephant should wear ivory pin and that kind of thing. Um, but later on in life, I kind of, you know, was just busy doing other things um, and was not really as engaged with it until I finally ended up in grad school. Um, and I was actually not even doing environmental economics. I kind of didn't really think about it similar to Jimena until I kind of bumped into Laura Taylor um, who's now at NC State, but at that time was at Georgia State. And she was like, huh, you should probably do environmental economics. And I thought about it. I was like, oh, she's totally right. And so kind of the rest is history at this point. That is really cool. Great. Well, um, I would love to ask you more questions about your backgrounds, but maybe I'll have to do that some other time when we're at a conference or something. Um, for now, uh, I'd love to ask you some questions about a, a working paper that you recently published um, with a large group of co-authors. Um, the name of the article is Environmental and Natural Resource Economics and Systemic Racism. So we're going to dive into that topic today, and I think it's going to be really fascinating. Um, but first, what was the motivation behind this article? What were you trying to accomplish? Um, and um, yeah, what inspired you to to write this thing? Yeah, so um, this project has really been a labor of love, and the um, this group of people, I also have to say, is absolutely the single best 
bunch of people in the world. So super lucky to have gotten to work with all of them. And um, various groups of us are moving forward on other stuff as well together. Um, yeah, so we started talking about this in um, summer of 2020, um, when a lot of people were having conversations about racial justice. And I think a number of us were kind of feeling like, where is the reckoning in environmental natural resource economics? And so, you know, we kind of, a number of us had separately identified some things that we were worried about in the field. Um, and we just started talking about what what can we bring? Um, what is the conversation that we would want to start? Um, and where do we think that could take us as individuals and the field? Um, and so we coalesced around this idea of writing what we feel like is kind of a call to arms paper, where we say, look, this is a world in which systemic racism has shaped so many things around us. Um, and that means that even when you think you're just trundling along doing your work on, you know, whether, you know, doing work on water pollution or doing work on non-market valuation or whatever you're working on, you think that has nothing to do with race. But the problem with systemic racism is that it is systemic. That's the whole idea. It sort of ends up in everything. Um, and so what we really want to do is not what we're not doing is we're not contributing to the literature on environmental justice um, as it's developing in economics right now, which is super important. I'm a huge fan of that literature. Um, what we're doing rather is basically saying um, we are all doing work that is affected by racism. Um, and we need to think about both how racism is affecting the quality of the science that we're doing. And we also need to think about whether the science that we're doing could unintentionally be furthering racist outcomes. Um, and we're trying to give sort of concrete examples that relate directly to sort of a lot of methodologies that a lot of us use. And so I'll just give um, an example. Um, when we think about valuing a lot of things in environmental economics, a lot of times we're going to look at the prices of things that are sold on a market to value things that are not sold on a market. So for example, we look at the prices of houses to see how much people value having clean air, how much people value being close to green space, like all those nice things. Um, the problem is, um, in a world of systemic racism, house prices um, are not like a pure uh, free market expression of people's preferences. So, you know, we have all these like um, redlining, we have real estate agents steering people one way or another, we have credit that is uh, making it more difficult for um, folks of color uh, to borrow, and we have um, outright racial hostility that makes it so it is in many ways more costly or difficult for people uh, of color to live in certain areas versus other areas. So when we look at those um, housing prices, what we're seeing is a reflection not purely of the preferences that we think that we're trying to measure, but um, but they're actually really tainted. And so our science is not great. And when we make policy recommendations based on that, then we might be furthering racial inequity because we might, for example, be inferring that folks of color value clean environments less um, when it's really just that there are other barriers that we're not representing. Right. That's a great example and, and really helpful way to get started. And so you and your co-authors in this paper 
um, you know, you focus really on four main issues that um, potentially contribute to racial injustice and also that might be affected by racial injustice. So we're just going to sort of talk through them one at a time. Uh, and the first of the four that you identify is the tendency for economists to focus on maximizing efficiency rather than looking at how benefits and harms are shared. Or in economics parlance, we use the term distributional outcomes. So can you talk first about this issue of efficiency versus distribution um, and just yeah, help us understand it, maybe give us an example or two? Thank you, Daniel. This is a great question. Favorite efficiency over distribution is one way in which our field may be affected by and may unintentionally further racial inequity. Let me discuss a few examples. First, our field tends to emphasize the need for individual and clearly defined rights to manage common resources like forests. The assumption is that formalizing who owns the forest or who is responsible for it help manage it in a better way. Um, however, many forests in developing countries have been successfully managed by indigenous communities who have traditions to care for the forest as a group. And in some cases, policymakers have tried to formalize who owned the resource without input from the local communities. And as outside organizations or individuals come in and claim those rights, these policies have harmed local communities. For instance, some outsiders may get compensated for carbon offsets from forests that have been managed by indigenous communities. And as the voices of indigenous groups have been undervalued, or ignored in some instances, these policies diminish their ability to advocate for their benefits, traditions, and institutions. Another way in which our field may be affected by racial inequality is related to benefit cost analysis. Basically, policies are pursued if their benefits are greater than their costs. But to estimate benefits, methods have been developed to assign value in dollars to environmental improvements. And the problem is that some methods result in estimates that disadvantage minorities since wealth and income have been affected by systemic racism. For example, people of color have been discriminated in housing markets, being denied access to neighborhoods and better amenities. As Sarah mentioned, we can consider redlining, which is a discriminatory practice that denies financial services like loans and insurance for people who live in neighborhoods perceived as lower quality. These neighborhoods typically include a large percentage of minorities, and there have been documented cases in which people of color have been offered worse loan terms, denied employment opportunities, offered lower salaries, or given lower housing offers or valuations. And these discriminatory practices affect the wealth and income of people of color. And since our methods to estimate environmental benefits consider income, our estimates are also affected by systemic racism. In fact, not considering discrimination may suggest that people of color appear to value environmental improvements less. And one more thing I would like to add is that research by sociologists concludes that people of color in the U.S. have outdoor preferences that have been affected by experiences of harassment, violence, and exclusion. If people of color don't feel welcome at a park due to racism or harassment, they may avoid parks or go less frequently to parks, even though they may enjoy park activities such as playing basketball, soccer, bird watching, or hiking. So if our field doesn't consider systemic racism in our benefit cost analysis, our recommendations may lead to less investment in environmental quality, 
for communities of color, further amplifying inequities. Right. Those are great examples. And when you said bird watching, my mind immediately went to that famous case of the bird watcher in Central Park, uh, who I forget his name, but the the police, someone called the police on him for bird watching, which is like just so awful and bizarre. So let's talk now about a um, the second issue that you focus on and identify um, as a key issue for folks in this field to to think about really hard, um, which is procedural justice. We've talked a little bit about procedural justice on the show before, but uh, can you give our uh, listeners a reminder about what that term means and then tell us why ignoring it in the context of economic research makes a big difference? For sure. Um, and it's been, I'll be honest, it's been a little bit of a journey for me in learning about procedural justice as well. Um, so, um, you know, as Jimena was just talking about, um, we in economics, long time focused almost entirely on efficiency, said equity in the sense of distributional justice is somebody else's problem. And now I think it's super exciting that so many people are thinking about distributional um, equity um, as Sarah, being, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you know, one thing I realized that we actually haven't defined the term efficiency. So oh. when we, just for the non-economists yeah, who are listening, when we say efficiency, what do we mean? So efficiency, I always say to my students, we're talking about how high is the pie and my students do not get the reference, but we're talking about the size of the pie um, is efficiency versus equity is who is getting the slices um, versus procedural justice is really like who is making decisions about baking the pie in the first place and about how, you know, what is what is this whole pie situation going to be? So I guess uh, I guess that's how I'd put the three together. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. So um, economics is inherently um, a field that philosophers would call consequentialist. So we focus a lot on the outcomes. And in fact, if you look at textbooks um, for undergraduates, they will often talk about caring about anything other than like who gets what in the end and how much there is in the end as being basically irrational, um, which um, is kind of special uh, to economists. I think most philosophers would consider that to be a, a you know very particular approach to the world. Um, most of the world actually also cares about process, procedure, how we get there. Um, and in fact, when we talk about environmental justice in economics, we often talk about who has disparate exposure to pollution, disparate access to natural amenities. Um, but um, everybody else's definitions of environmental justice um, include um, process, procedure. So um, a common definition includes fair, participatory, and inclusive structures and processes of environmental decision-making. Um, that's a quote from an uh, article by Bell in 2014. Um, giving communities a voice, treating everyone with respect and impartiality, and being transparent is another common set of elements. Um, and these are so commonly accepted that even the EPA um, includes procedural justice in its definition of environmental justice. They talk about equal access to the decision-making process as part of environmental justice. Um, so that's what um, uh, uh, procedural justice is. Um, should I talk a bit about why I think it's important? Yeah, that would be great. Cool. So, um, so first, I think it, procedural justice is, for most of us, intrinsically important. So we all want to have our voices heard. We all want to feel respected and to feel like we have some agency 
in the things that are affecting us. So I think there's intrinsic value there. Um, but even if you are a dyed-in-the-wool consequentialist economist who will not give up on uh, outcomes being the most important thing, uh, you actually should also care about procedural justice because um, – in many of these situations, we're talking about putting in place policies that are going to affect local communities, but who is going to have the insights into how exactly is this policy going to play out, um, whether there are little power imbalances, whether there are some little snags that the policy might write into, and whether there are ways in which the policy just won't work, the local communities are going to really have the visibility into what the actual problems are. And so if we want things to go well, then procedural justice should not be just about, we had a community meeting and we told them what we're going to do, but actually really engaging communities as things are going on. So um, as an example, um, you know, Jimena and I actually dug a lot into the conservation markets literature and thinking about this project. And we found uh, sort of similar to a lot of the things that Jimena has already mentioned, that in many cases, procedural justice um, has not been upheld when conservation markets are put in place in developing countries. So um, we found many cases where for red or even red plus projects, and red is the UN's project for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation by essentially conserving land for forests um, in developing countries mostly. And Red Plus was developed on top of that in part to try to empower communities more. But even so, we found many cases in which communities were not informed, their voices were not heard. In some cases, the documents weren't even translated into the local languages, so they couldn't have been informed about what was going on. Um, and as Jimena points out, um, you know, this is another case where um, procedural justice can actually have instrumental value. The um, there's a bunch of research that shows that when local and indigenous communities are involved in conservation, that's where you get really good conservation outcomes. Um, I do want to mention one other thing. So that's all like procedural justice when we're thinking about um, evaluating policies. When we're thinking about our own research, we also can think about procedural justice. Most of us do research just by like having our brilliant idea, like hanging out in our office, tapping away on our computer, like I'm going to come up with this great thing. I'm going to do this great analysis and I'm just going to put this paper out into the world. Um but um, our our research is about real people, um, and so the uh, the truly um, procedurally just way to do research when that research is about communities is to involve those communities. And uh, so there's this movement right now for community engaged research. Um, and I know you've had some great people on the show. In fact, I think you had Bea Spiller on the show talking about some community engaged research, if I remember right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So. You know, that this is a little bit of a scary process for a lot of scholars because you um, you really need to engage communities from the very start. You really are, by definition, giving up control because you're giving some power to the communities that you're working with. I've never done this. It sounds both terrifying and exhilarating, but I think it's a really important area that a lot of people are moving into to make sure that their work in, not only has good outcomes, but is informed by justice all the way through. That's a great answer. And as, as someone who's involved in some engaged research now, I can verify that it is indeed uh, very challenging and completely exhilarating and fascinating and, um, uh, you know, 
an amazing process to to go through. You just learn so much more, and the context is so much richer um, when you're really working with people who are affected. Um, so uh, the next question uh, that I'd love to ask uh, either of you, whoever would like to respond to it, is uh, kind of similar. It involves history and context. So oftentimes, you know, in let's say like back in the day, economists would like get a data set, analyze the data set write up the paper and that's the like that's the end of the process it's all about the data and the now um and sometimes like history and social context gets completely ignored uh as part of that analysis it's always totally baffled me because i always like the history the best um so can you help us understand um how this process manifests in the field and why it's a problem i'll take this one uh and i also share the sentiment that it's mind blowing that this hasn't been more uh, incorporated into our research, but one way in which our field ignores historical and social context is by overlooking important factors that have affected people of color. And I'll give other examples later on. But I, I already mentioned redlining as a practice that has established barriers for minority to get loans and move to neighborhoods with better amenities. As systemic racism has negatively affected the financial well-being of minorities, our field ought to consider it when employing methods that have income as an input. Our field cannot ignore that people of color have been denied loans or given worse loan terms. Even people of color who own homes have faced systemic racism. Consider stories about lower housing valuations given to African-American homeowners or African-American homeowners staging their homes as if white people live there to get better offers or appraisals. Um, so that's a big, big part of it. But also let's consider now fighting for environmental quality. This is harder for people of color due to discrimination and wealth inequality. Obtaining the information to advocate or oppose proposals come at a cost in terms of time, money, and political capital. If people of color have to work two jobs, they won't have the time or resources to advocate for a policy change. They're just trying to do their best to get by. In addition, People of color may not have access to the necessary information to advocate for or fight against policies. Ignoring these cost or information differences may result in environmental policies that may perpetuate racial inequity. Another way in which our field ignores historical and social context is related to the management of common resources, like forests. As I mentioned earlier, our field often prioritizes policy recommendations that are focused on establishing private individual and enforceable rights. And the issue here is that the fact that putting those ideas into practice occasionally overlooks local traditions of communities of colors that result in unfair outcomes. It is problematic when institutions and voices of indigenous communities are disregarded. And it is also problematic that the unintended incentives created by these policies and the harm they may cause to local communities are not given the consideration they deserve. Our paper cites several examples from the global south that exemplify these issues. Um, some conservation projects have started without communities knowing about them. Some projects, as Sarah mentioned, weren't even translated for local communities or communities didn't understand them well. In Africa, we see more private acquisitions of land previously held by communities. In Peru, external actors in the search for profits have convinced indigenous communities to give up their land rights. 
Um, another example is in Tanzania, where natural resources have been taken away from communities to extract the benefits from conservation markets. And there are more examples that show how communities of color in the global south have been negatively affected by conservation efforts that didn't consider local institutions, traditions, as well as historical and social context. That's great. And, and another example that comes to my mind from here in the United States is, you know, the history of um, the imposition of private property rights on Native American uh, communities. If folks are curious about this, just look up the Dawes Act uh, from 1887, I think, um, and you'll learn about the, the very troubled history of this here in the United States as well. So fourth um, in our list of issues that are affected by and could unintentionally contribute to systemic racism um, that you and your co-authors describe in the paper is the argument that economists um, focus too much on problems that they consider tractable, like potentially solvable. So what do you mean uh, by this? Can you give a couple examples and why does it matter for, um, for this field of research and the outcomes that we care about? Yeah, so... Um... I think that we, we we can sort of think about this focus on quote-unquote tractability in two different ways. So I'll talk a little bit about looking too much at uh, things that are tractable to model, like easy to model, and things that are tractable to solve, easy to solve. Um, so thinking about tractable modeling. So um, many of you listeners are economists. Many of you are not. Uh, those of you who are economists know that we love our calculus. So we want everything to be nice and smooth. You want to be able to take a nice derivative, have a nice like marginal condition that's <laughs> going to pop out the solution that says, oh, this is going to equal that. Um, and that's great. Um, but the problem is that um, a lot of times what happens with systemic racism in our society is that it makes it so that the calculus won't work so nicely um, because it's putting in place these frictions. Um, and so that's going to make all these little bumps and jumps that's going to make it uh, so that our very nice equilibrium predictions didn't work. So I know that might sound a little bit abstract. So let me just uh, bring it back to the context we've touched on a couple of times already of housing. So, um, you know, we have these great models and there's some beautiful papers about how um, people will move around, they will sort um, into different neighborhoods based on what their preferences are, what the amenities, uh, the good things are that are available in the different places. And uh, all of that, um, super interesting work, um, but it does rely on this idea that people can just move smoothly from one place to another. The problem is that um, not everybody, well, nobody can move smoothly, <laughs> but different people have different, I mean, I don't know if any of you guys have moved lately, but it's not fun. But, you know, it's not just like the cost of hiring a mover and all those things. It's also the barriers that might be in place. So um, Jimena and I have both already mentioned that um, folks of color, especially black families in the U.S., um, encounter all kinds of barriers trying to move into different neighborhoods. And so the sorting process is not going to be nearly as smooth as, as the models would have it. So the models as they are for who lives where and why they live where they live, they really don't serve the purpose of thinking about where people are living um, right now in the United States. Um, and fixing them so that they would solve that. It's not just a matter of like adding a little bit of a friction parameter. Um, it'll be a place where it'll actually be much more difficult um, to do the math. So um, 
fortunately, economists are very smart people. <laughs> so I actually would like to think that these are problems that we can solve. And I would love to see some work that uh, people can do on that front. Um, because again, we have really good tools in economics. And I think that we can answer those kinds of questions. Um, so that's on the tractable model side. Um, and those models, I think they limit what we can say, because I do think our theory is powerful. They limit what we can say about the problems that we're facing right now. Um, and then thinking about tractable solution side, a lot of times when we are working on projects, we're focusing on something that's very localized. We're um, studying the impact of some very specific narrow thing. Um, and that makes it so that we're not looking at big problems and big solutions. So I myself am an example of this. You know, I one of my first papers was looking at land conservation policies and what happens after the term of a conservation policy. And so, you know, the implications of a paper like that might be what well, we should have different kinds of terms or different kinds of stipulations in the contracts or whatever. Um, and that's all well and good. But, you know, it's like this um, wise men of Helm story. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the wise men of Helm, but there's like, it's it's this like Jewish way of, of telling kind of folk tales. And so there's a bunch of people that are looking for keys to the temple and somebody's lost the keys, where are the keys? And they're looking and somebody comes up and they're looking in this area where there's a bunch of light and they say, oh, is this where you lost the keys? And the people say, no, but this is where the light is. And that's kind of, I think, what we do a little bit in terms of looking at solutions and, and problems. We're not, um, if you look at the distribution of problems that our papers are about, um, published in our journals, um, it is not the same as the distribution of the problems as we see them in the world. And I think that's because we are sort of not being ambitious enough. We're really focusing on what are the features of the policies that exist and what would happen if we made marginal tweaks on them. But we can think of a lot of big problems that aren't being studied much right now in an economic, environmental economics. So for example, think about sanitation in rural America. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have um, read Catherine Coleman Flower's work on um, the poor sanitation that many people who live in rural America have to deal with and all of the health problems that result from that. I have really not seen a lot of papers about that, even though that's affecting a lot of people's lives. There are way more papers on whether we can reduce energy or water usage by a couple of percent by tweaking people's bills. And I'm not saying that's not important, but I'm just saying we need we need more of the other. And then one other um, little thing is thinking about like big solutions that we're not talking about. Um, there are some huge solutions that would have really big environmental implications that I have never seen an environmental economics paper about. One of them giving land back to tribal communities that had their land taken away, that would have huge environment and natural resource implications. I've never seen a paper about that. Um, reparations to American descendants of slavery. You know, we know that um, inequities feed into environmental injustice. And so reparations would have huge uh, environmental implications. But I've never seen an environmental economics paper about that either. So I think uh, we have great tools, both on the theory side and on the empirical side and the policy analysis side. We just need to think bigger. That's such a great answer. And and certainly, I think a call to arms is uh, seems appropriate in uh, terms of characterizing 
uh, your comment there and characterizing the the paper itself. So um, there are a million more questions I would love to ask both of you, Jimena and Sarah, but we'll have to do it another time. Uh, I really encourage people to check out the paper uh, and think about it. Uh, it's really provocative in all sorts of good ways. Uh, the link to the paper is, of course, in the show notes. It's called Environmental and Natural Resource Economics and Systemic Racism. Uh, so let's go now to the last feature that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that you think is great. It can be related to the environment or not, we're pretty flexible. Um, so Sarah, let's start with you. What's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Yes. So um, this is a literal reading stack. So I am I am uh, right now very slowly, but very delightedly making my way through Ed Yong's book from a couple of years ago, which is called An Immense World. And it's about um, animal perception. And it basically goes through all of the senses, more senses than you thought actually existed. Um, and the idea really is that um, each of us, you know, humans and all the other species, our perceptions are uh, different windows onto the world. And everybody's windows are very different. And I think that in addition to being a bunch of cool animal facts, it's also like we would understand the world better if we thought for a minute about looking out other animals' windows as well. That sounds amazing. And it reminds me of a New Yorker article I read recently about some people using AI technologies in the field to try to understand whale language and to try to communicate with whales, which sounds kind of science fiction-y and, and great. Jimena, how about you? What's at the top of your stack? I recently read a book titled Solito by Javier Zamora. Javier tells his story of migrating from El Salvador at age 10 uh, to the U.S. So he goes country by country. Uh, he's sent by to meet his parents who are in the U.S. Um, he goes alone. He goes with a coyote and other migrants. But it's a super powerful story um, told with a lot of detail and is very emotional. And I highly recommend for those who, who want to understand more the the journey of migrants that now it it starts not only from you know like El Salvador and Central America but now you know all the way down in South America people are crossing the Darien gap uh, between Colombia and Panama so it's it's a great book please check it out Solito great that sounds fascinating and again we'll have links to both of those in the show notes so people can check them out. Well, one more time, Jimena Gonzalez from Manhattan College and Sarah Jacobson from Williams College. Thanks to both of you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. This has been super fun. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.